Scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's just pray together. Yes, so Father, help us to understand by your Spirit uh, this great and tremendous and uh, word-escaping reality that we have been joined to your Son, Jesus, and that together in our diverse giftings, we make up his body. Father, I pray for those who feel uh, peripheral to your mission, less vital this morning, would they see their indispensable role? Lord, for those who are puffed up in our midst, Lord, I ask that you would humble us, that you would cause us to repent. And I pray ultimately, Lord, that at the end of today, we'd have a better picture, a better idea of what it means to be the body of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, to whom we are joined. Amen. There is no body... There is no community, there is no group of people anywhere in the world like the body of Christ. I'm convinced of that. Are you convinced of that? In our passage today, we consider this beautiful picture of the church as a body. And maybe the church as a beautiful body is hard for you to believe. So maybe... You've been an insider for the last three years. You've been a part of a church. You've seen the inner workings of a church, and she has appeared anything but beautiful to you. Or you've watched from the periphery as a skeptic, as an outsider, and you thought from the outside looking in, she doesn't seem, look like she's beautiful. She seems actually at times quite ugly. Or you're just a faithful listener, and you've been tracking in our First Corinthians series, and you've seen this church a church full of infighting and incest 
and idolatry. And you find this hard to believe. The invitation this morning is very clear for us, Christ City. As we consider what it means to be Christ's body, Paul's inviting us to reform our view of the church, to capture anew the beauty of Christ's body, to see ourselves as this body and to recapture the, the countercultural reality that you have been joined to Christ. To see that there is no body, no group, no community in the whole entire world like the body of Christ. We're going to look at three things this morning very simply. One, who we've become. Two, where we go wrong. And then thirdly and finally, what this body is supposed to look like, okay? Who we become, where we go wrong, and what this body is supposed to look like. Bible's open, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 12. Let's read those first two verses together. Look with me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul's illustrating now the truth we've considered the past couple of weeks, that though differently gifted, though playing different roles, we're all one. And previously, last two weeks, Paul's rooted our oneness and us all having the same source for our gifts, right? The same triune God has gifted each one of us. That's our oneness, he says. But now he's rooting our oneness not in the source, but in the fact that we, you and I, the church, have been joined to Christ. We've all become one body in Christ. This great reality. Church, he says, in all bold, in all caps, so we don't miss it. You have been joined to Christ. Verse 12 says this. Verse 12 says, and see to the extent to which our union with Christ is true. See, Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so though many are one body, so it is with. What do we expect Paul to say next? We expect him to say, so it is with the what? The church, right? Right? That's, we've been talking about the church. This is about the church. It's a letter to the church. We expect Paul to say, so it is with the church. But... He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, look at verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, he says, so it is with Christ. Here's what he's saying. Believers have been so joined to Christ to become Christ's very body. Believers are so joined to Christ, they are inseparable from Christ. So much so that Paul's abbreviation for the church in this context is simply to say Christ. He just says Christ. And if that sounds strange or mystical or weird to you, and, and surely that can't be true, let me remind you of Acts 9. And you go, of course, Acts 9, been there this morning. But in Acts 9, Paul, he's, he's called Saul at that point. It says in Acts 9, he is breathing threats and murder against the church. He's persecuting the church of Jesus, right? He's on the Damascus road, and famously, he encounters the risen Lord, the risen Jesus. 
And what does Jesus say to, to Paul, then called Saul? He says this, I'll tell you. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you see that? Jesus says, uh, no, then Paul says, and he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said to Paul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. According to Jesus, believers are so united to him, so inseparably entwined with who he is, that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. And of course, as you've been tracking in 1 Corinthians, this mystical, mysterious union idea with Christ is not a new idea. It's a foundation, actually, of all this uh, epistle. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul did a little bit of an aside to the men in Corinth. He said, listen, men, it's time to, to shape it up, right? It's time to get your act together. You need to stop having sex with prostitutes. And he says it because of this. He says, when you have sex with prostitutes, men, do you not know that since you are joined with Christ, for you to have sex with a prostitute is in fact, he says this, and it's, it, it's vulgar and explicit, but, but it's nonetheless true. He says, if you have sex with prostitutes, you're then joining Christ to a prostitute. That's the language of 1 Corinthians 6. Believers are so united to Christ that to become one with someone else is to join Christ to that person. It's this mystical, mysterious union. See, church, you have been inseparably joined to Christ to a degree I don't think we'll fully comprehend until he returns. But Paul continues to tell us in this text how that happened. He says in verse 13, for in what? One spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This language of being baptized into one body or being made to drink of one spirit is, is not a reference to a second baptism that occurs after you are converted to, to following Jesus. It's not a reference even to, to the sacraments of, of baptism and, and, and communion. No, Paul's just using two different metaphors to, to say one simple thing, that believers now joined to Christ have now entered the sphere or the realm of the Spirit. To be a Christian is to drink deeply of the Holy Spirit, to be filled deeply, immersed in the Holy Spirit. That, that's Paul's evocative language in this text. You are spirit people now joined to Christ, church. That's what he's saying. So we are together joined by the Holy Spirit to Christ. But as it pertains to our context here, what he wants to say is we're not just joined to Christ, but also we're joined to one another. We're, we're joined to other members of, of the body. In a book that I've quoted so often from this pulpit, I, I hope you've, you've bought it by now, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together, about community, about true community, fleshing out the implications of being one body in Christ, saying this. He says, the individual, the individual must realize that his hours of aloneness react upon the community. In his solitude, he can sunder and besmirch the fellowship, or he can strengthen and hallow it. Every act of self-control of the Christian is also a service to the fellowship. He, he's fleshing out what it means to be the body of Christ. He says, on the other hand, there is no sin in thought, word, or deed, no matter how personal or secret, 
that does not inflict injury upon the whole fellowship. An element of sickness gets into the body. And perhaps nobody knows where it comes from or in what member it has lodged, but the body is infected. And this is the proper metaphor for the Christian community. We are members of a body, listen, not only when we choose, not only when we choose to be, but in our whole existence. He says, every member serves the whole body, either to its health or its destruction. Every member serves the whole body, either to its health or its destruction. This is no mere theory. It is a spiritual reality. And the Christian community has often experienced its effects with disturbing clarity, sometimes destructively and sometimes fortunately. Despite what we are told every hour of every single day, we are not, in Christ, autonomous individuals. You have been spiritually joined to Christ and therefore spiritually joined to his church, his people. So when we neglect the gathering, it hurts the body. When we neglect our spiritual disciplines, it hurts the body. When we participate in sin, to borrow from Bonhoeffer, it sickens the body. Of course, conversely, positively, it's also true. When we engage in our spiritual disciplines, it, it benefits the body. It, it blesses the body. When we're present with one another, it blesses the whole body. Our actions or non-actions either serve the body to its health or to its destruction. But there's more for us to see. Notice in verse 13, there's a little qualifier between the two metaphors of baptism and drinking. The one where he tells us exactly who comprises Christ's body, who are Holy Spirit people. He says this, he says, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Here's why this qualifier is so important for us this morning. Paul is going to talk about Christ's body having differentiated, um, differentiated members, different people gifted to do different things. But in reminding us first that Christ's body consists of Jews, Greeks, slaves, and free, he's telling us that the old lines of differentiation, the old lines that the world draws, lines of race, lines of ethnicity, lines of social standing, those old lines are not to be drawn anymore within the body. To borrow from what he's about to say, he says, your assigned role in Christ's body, either as a nose or an eye or an ear, is a matter not of your first birth, but of your second birth in Christ. That's what he's saying. And if I can illustrate it, let, let me paint the contrasting picture here. Now, India's caste system has its origins in a millennia-old belief that the various castes proceed from various parts of Brahma's body. And there's a picture up on the screen for you. Unsurprisingly, the higher castes, uh, like the priestly class and the ruling class, are believed to proceed from the, the head and the chest, with, with the lower classes proceeding from the, the torso and the feet, and then eventually the, the deletes or the untouchables who are not even worthy to proceed from Brahma's body at all. They don't even come from his body at all. 
And I bring this up because I want us to see the contrast between this way of thinking, this theological worldview, and the one that Paul is painting. Paul saying that this is not how the body of Christ works. This is not how Jesus' people work. He says, in the body of Christ, a gifted administrator may be wealthy or poor, black, brown, or white. He says, in the body of Christ, high social standing in the world doesn't automatically de facto make you the, the brain or the heart of Christ's body. All those lines, he said, have been washed away. Level ground at the foot of the cross. I bring this up in order that we might be vigilant as we now consider our many different roles that we do not unwittingly do what the Corinthians did and bring earthly and worldly distinctions into Christ's body. And we turn to the Corinthian error now as we see this is point two where we, where Corinth went wrong. Arriving at verse 14, it becomes clear that again, it can become exhausting, can it? Corinth is dealing with infighting and division, a lack of unity. Body life has gone terribly wrong. And so we pick it up in verse 14. Paul responds by saying this. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of uh, hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Let's stop there. Though we've become one body in Christ, we're not all the same limb. We're not all the same organ. Remember, the aim is not uniformity. Everyone acting and looking and gifted the same, but unity around our diverse giftings, around our diverse roles. And it's this diversity of roles that seems to be so problematic in Corinth, so divisive in Corinth. Now, we can't be exactly sure what's going on, but it seems like there is a so-called spiritual group that is emphasizing things like tongues and interpretation of tongues and workings of power and prophecy to the belittlement and the neglect of everybody else. So-called spiritual, powerful people and the rest of y'all. Sort of how it's broken down. The result is that two problems, I think, exist in Corinth. And the, and the first problem is on the surface very simple. When some understand their gifts as lesser, they logically conclude, well, I am less important or less vital to the church community. If my gifts are lesser, my standing is lesser, and so I am lesser. That's the problem. That's the thinking going on in Corinth. And Paul responds clearly saying, listen, a foot is no less part of the body than a hand. An ear, no less part of the body than an eye. And to prove it, he gives us this grotesque image in verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an eye, 
Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And, and you can think of this giant eye, like mucus coming out of it as it walks the streets of Vancouver like the eye of Sauron or something, right? That was a nerd, that was a nerd reference. Or a giant ear walking the streets of Vancouver. Like how grotesque, how unbeautiful is that picture? But when we reflect on what Paul's saying here, is it not true that this is what many churches have become? The great tragedy of denominationalism is that along with churches fracturing along doctrinal lines, inevitably there is fracturing along lines of giftings. So let me speak very broadly and very generally for a second, knowing that all that what I'm saying is not true for everyone everywhere. And yet I think there is a, a kernel of truth in this. Those who have teaching gifts, will they become Anglicans and Presbyterians and sometimes weird Reformed Mennonites, which are an anomaly in the history of the church. Those who have gifts of mercy, of hospitality and helps, well, they head to liberal mainline churches. While the prophets, those with gifts of healing, Workings of power, tongues, interpretation of tongues, flock to Pentecostal and other so-called charismatic churches. Again, these are broad generalizations. There are, of course, churches with a healthy mix of noses and ears and arms and eyes. But could it be that the declining health of the church in North America is due to our local bodies being grotesquely misshapen? Churches unable to see their own blind spots because they're comprised of noses. Churches unable to smell their own decay because they're all eyes. Churches unable to hear the truth of God's word because they're all hands. Each member of the church is radically vital. Do you see that? Radically vital. And the church that ignores or devalues the gifts of one group of people only to elevate other gifts, they do this at their own peril and to their own ill health. But let's not talk about other churches for a second. Let's talk about our church. And let me be the first to say that we are far from perfect in this area at Christ City. We have a lot of growing to do in equipping the body to be the body. But if you're here this morning and you feel like your gifting has no place in this church, no place in this community, can I tell you that despite what you feel and despite the good reasons you might have to feel the way you feel, uh, that you're wrong, that you are welcomed here. But more than that, according to Paul, according to Scripture, your presence here is vital for our flourishing Vital for our well-being. We need you. We can't be the body without you. And Scripture does not give you permission to just go find a church where everyone else has your gift, where everyone else is like you. Not only is it not good for the church, and it's not good for the church, but it's not good for you. It's not good for you or me or us. If you want to know more about why your gift is so vital to this church, 
why we need you, I or, or someone else on our team would love to buy you a coffee this week and tell you. Body life goes wrong when we believe our gifts to be somehow lesser or not, or not vital. When we're pushed to the side. But ultimately, and I think this is the deeper problem in Corinth, I think this is the deeper problem for us today, this belief that I'm lesser or I'm not vital, well, sure can have reasons in the body life, is ultimately a failure to trust in the sovereignty of God. The second way that life as Christ's body goes wrong is when we fail to trust in the sovereign and perfect plan of God as it pertains to our gifting. See, last week Paul said, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Then he says this, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit doesn't ask us, what would you like? He apportions as he wills. And now Paul says in verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Later in verse 24, he'll say again, but God has so composed, like, like a master artist painting a picture, or master architect building a, a home, but God has so composed the body and Paul's saying, your role in the body, the gift you've been given, has not been arbitrarily assigned. No, the sovereign God has so composed the body this way, meaning the gifts you have are according to God's choosing. But that also means the gifts you don't have are according to God's choosing. Which also means the measure in which you have the gifts you have is according to God's choosing. The body goes wrong. We go wrong. We start to look ugly when we fail to trust God and begin to play the comparison game. So either we compare down to others, right? We say, I have this gift. They don't have this gift. Therefore, I'm spiritually superior and pride is the fruit of that life. Or we compare up. We say, I wish I had that gift. And God, why didn't you give me that gift in that measure? And so we grumble and moan and despair is the fruit of that life. The cure to, to pride, the cure to despair as it comes to the gifts is a deep and abiding trust in the sovereignty of God. The God who loves you and cares for you, who knows what's best for you and gave accordingly to you. When we choose to trust God with how he's made us, me and you, us, with all our limits, all our warts, all of our shortcomings. Not only are we rescued from pride and despair, but we experience the joy of being ourselves, of being who God made us to be. There's an old 19th century pastor named J.R. Miller who said this. He says, when it comes to the body... The question of small or great has no place here. To have been thought about at all and then fashioned by God's hand to fill any place is glory enough for the grandest and most aspiring life. And the highest place to which anyone can attain in life is that for which he or she was designed and made. The highest place 
to which anyone can attain in life is that for which he or she was designed and made. Do we trust God with how he's made us? Do we trust God with how he's gifted us? Lastly, what Paul shows us now is that not only are there no lesser or unnecessary gifts in the body, but in the economy of Jesus' kingdom, those considered lesser are in fact worthy of greater honor. This is point three. What the body is supposed to look like. Look at verse 22. Paul says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. He says, And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater uh, modesty, which our uh, more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The, the whole picture of the body, Paul didn't make it up. It's not new to Paul. More than five centuries before Paul, in, in the Roman world, in the Roman Republic, a man named Senator Menenius Agrippa of Rome, faced with the insurrection of the plebes, which is a funny-sounding thing given our current vernacular, the insurrection of the plebes, right, of, of the slaves, of, of the lower classes. Senator Menenius appealed to these lower classes to do their duty to fill the belly of Rome. That is really simply, it was their duty to work the farms and to do all the labor so that there was still food and wine and all that good stuff on the tables of rich people and of powerful people, and of governing people. It's this powerful, famous metaphor employed five centuries before Paul. But notice, Paul, likely familiar with this historical example, this historical usage of the body, is flipping the senator's words on his head. He's saying this, In Christ's body, it is not those who are considered disposable whose duty it is to bear up the indisposable. Rather, it is the duty of those who by virtue of their gifting receive more honor to give greater honor to those hidden members, those so-called lesser members. And the illustration Paul uses, while a bit shocking, I think it's actually really helpful. He says, think of it like this. He says, consider a person's genitalia. That's what he's saying. I could lie to you and say he's not saying that, but that's what he's saying. That's the meaning of the word their unpresentable parts. He's saying, consider a person's private parts. It is right, he continues, that they be covered, treated with greater modesty. But listen, just because you cover your, your private parts with, with greater modesty, does that then mean that they're not valuable? To which everyone then, and hopefully everyone now, would say, of course not. <laughs> no. In fact, maybe they're of greater honor, more valuable. That's, that, that's the imagery he's, he's using here. Like the parts of our body our bathing suits cover, there are some covered gifts. But just because they're covered or hidden doesn't mean they're worthless. In fact, the opposite is true. And the point Paul is making is that some gifts operate in hidden and discreet ways. Gifts that when practiced and used are seen perhaps only by the Lord and no one else. Gifts 
not done on a stage before other people. Gifts not done before a crowd. Gifts like administration. Gifts like helping. Gifts like mercy. Gifts like intercessory prayer. And while the body gone wrong ignores these hidden gifts or just uses them to prop up the famous gifts, right? The, 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 the gift of the day, the gift du jour. Christ's body actively celebrates these gifts in order, Paul says, verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, no resentment or backbiting, no separation or envy, but honoring these hidden gifts, ensuring that the members may have the same care for one another. And if you think, I'm going to miss this opportunity not to honor some of the hidden gifts among us this morning, you don't know me. You're dead wrong. Among the indispensable parts of the body, some people got very nervous, but among the indispensable parts of the body we want to honor this morning includes all of you who labor in children's ministry. We want to honor you this morning. Those who give up a gathering once a month to teach our kids the gospel, to build into them the hope of Jesus, we honor you this morning. Those who hold a screaming child for 55 minutes, longer if Daniel was preaching. <laughs> we honor you this morning. Moms and dads doing the dirty work at home, changing diapers, faithfully disciplining kids, instructing them in the way of the Lord. We honor you this morning. I think of Trevor. Think of Josh. Think of Liam. Think of Nick. People who set up each morning while the rest of us are sleeping, having our first cup of coffee, making pancakes. We honor you. I think of Amanda and Nicole and Jen and Ed and Marcia who come early and make coffee and clean the kitchen. We honor you. We especially honor you. We love our coffee. I could go on and on, and so I will. <laughs> to those who dropped off meals this week, to someone in need, we honor you. For those of you who gave up their Saturday to help someone move, we, we honor you. For those of you who met at that really inconvenient time, on that really inconvenient day, to help someone see something in the scriptures they had previously not seen, we honor you. For those who spent their Friday nights in intercessory prayer for our church, we honor you. Paul says you are not disposable, quite the opposite, you are indispensable. And we need you to hear that this morning, Christ City. We need you to hear that. And so I ask, how will it change your heart this week, knowing that the unseen and hidden use of your gifts are in fact indispensable in the body of Christ. That no gift in whatever size and context is ever wasted, ever spoiled, ever not useful. Christ's body at its very best honors the unseen gifts more than I've said here this morning. We end by seeing though that, that Christ's body not only seeks to honor one another, but also to suffer and rejoice with one another. Paul writes and we read, if one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. One commentator describes what's going on here like this. The individual members are so involved with one another that they react as one to what goes on in their midst. They react as one to what goes on in their midst. So let me give you a diagnostic test this morning. A good test of how much we are living, how much you are living, how much I am living into the reality that we, the church, are Christ's body, is to take note of how much someone else's suffering in the church impacts you. Think about that for a second. How much is someone else's suffering? Not your suffering, not your immediate family's suffering, but someone else's suffering in the church. How much does that impact you? Or how much are you able to rejoice in someone else's victory? To celebrate what they're celebrating? If the suffering and rejoicing of another member of the body has no bearing on you, it is quite like that you have in your heart amputated yourself from Christ's body. I'm going to say that again. It's really important we hear this. If the suffering and rejoicing of another member of the body has no bearing on you, could have happened, could have not happened, I don't know, it is quite likely that you have in your heart amputated yourself from Christ's body. Life in Christ's body, whether we like it or not, is committing to riding the roller coaster of people's suffering and, and their rejoicing. It's committing to ride that roller coaster. Still, I imagine there are some here this morning that have a more complex experience, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And maybe your response to other people's joy in the church is bitterness or envy. And maybe it's a bitterness or envy born out of real hurt and real disappointment in your life. Maybe it's a bitterness or envy born out of sinful coveting. Whatever the case, the call today is to bring that to the Lord, to ask for forgiveness, and ask that he might give you a heart that rejoices with those who rejoice. Or maybe you're callous to the suffering of others in the church this morning. Your world is happy, your world is good, things are good, things are great, and you want to be brought down by the suffering or the hardships of others. I want to be positive, right? There's a whole school of thought. Think positive, be with positive people. Things are happy, stay happy. Don't let anybody unhappy in. So you build up walls, right? You might have an idol of comfort. And you don't want it to be touched or disturbed. Your call this morning is to bring this to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness and that he might give you a heart that weeps with those who weep. And I think if we go down even further into our hearts for a moment, I think there's an inescapable circular reality to all this. Here's what I think happens. I think sometimes we don't rejoice with those who rejoice because no one was there to weep with us while we were weeping. Or maybe we refuse to weep with those who are weeping because the body wasn't around to join in your celebrating. Do you know how this cycle ends in a church? Do you know how the body acts like the body, looks like the body? It ends by saying, I'm refusing to play this victim card any longer. And I'm committing to be the church member I wish I had when I was suffering or when I was rejoicing. And the only way 
We can do this. The only way we can be this countercultural, strange body in a world that is passing and fading away is through Jesus. Only if Jesus has joined us through his life, death, and resurrection, given us his Holy Spirit, allowing us to be reconciled one to another, to love one another, not from envious or coveting hearts, but truly as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I implore you this morning, Christ City, to be the body of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, be reconciled to one another, join in the suffering of your brother or sister, join in the dancing and the celebrating and the partying of your brother and sister, and in doing so, we look more and more like Jesus made us to be. This is the vision Paul has for us this morning. Through Jesus' Spirit, not only are we empowered to use our gifts in complementary and diverse ways, but we're empowered to ask for forgiveness and to seek reconciliation, to co-suffer and co-rejoice as this countercultural community on display before a world that is watching us, that's watching us. Let's pray. Yes, so Jesus, we confess our shortcomings. I confess my shortcomings. I ask that you would forgive me. We want to be this beautiful body that you've sketched for us this morning. All using our diverse giftings, honoring those hidden members, joining each other in suffering, joining each other in rejoicing. Lord, that's our desire, that's our hope. And so Lord, make us those people. Form in us Christ himself by your spirit. And where we don't have eyes to see, where we have blind spots, Lord, would you reveal those to us? And for those this morning who do feel less vital, more peripheral to the mission and vision of the church, Lord, I pray this morning that they'd be encouraged to see their vitalness, their indispensableness in Christ's body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me, at jake at christcitychurch.ca.